That was a beautiful song, wasn't it? I'm going to pass the time now to Pastor Glenn, who's going to come and preach this morning from Ephesians 5. Just a couple of verses today, 15 to 17. Morning. This morning meditation is from Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, as Pastor Caroline mentioned, verses 15 to 17. If chapter 5, 15 to 17, only three verses, three instructions. They are precious, they are practical, and they are very profound. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 to 17. Let me just read to you. These three verses first, and I'll unpack it for you. Verse 15, Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. We have mentioned that chapter 4 to 6 is very practical is because Paul has already painted to us the picture of who we are and now he's telling us, now that you know who, we, who you are, this is how you ought to behave, how you ought to live. And it's almost like you, are, uh, become, you became a royal and, and as such you know how, then now how you ought to live as a royal. Um, so here Paul has been Plowing on in chapter 4, verse 1, that he says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. So, and from that verse on, he begins to unpack to us what does it mean to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. And therefore, he Mentioned in chapter 4, 1 to 16 is walk in unity that we have covered and walk in holiness, walk in love. And today's passage, only three verses on walk in wisdom. Uh, the word walk is always a biblical metaphor for lifestyle. Walk in unity, walk in holiness, walk in love, walk in wisdom. It is a biblical metaphor for lifestyle. And here is about wise living. What does it mean to walk wisely according to these three verses that Paul exhorts us? But let me just, in general, give you a, a very brief picture of who are the wise according to the scripture. In Psalm chapter 14, it says that the fool says in his heart, There is no God. And then in Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, the famous verse that we are all familiar with is that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So based on these two verses alone, we roughly can tell that the fool in the Scripture belongs to people who does not acknowledge God, does not acknowledge the Creator. So the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So then, whether 
you're wise or you're a fool, according to the scripture, is not based on whether you are educated or you're not, whether you're rich or poor, whether you live in an expensive suburb or you live in a poorer suburb. It has nothing to do with that, that at all. Whether you're a fool or you're wise, it has everything to do with whether you are acknowledging the fundamental, the creator, our God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So you can be very poor and yet you can be considered very wise. You can be very rich, yet biblically speaking, you can be known as a fool, even though you may be the richest man in the world. But so long as you don't acknowledge your creator or God, then you, biblically speaking, you are considered a fool. And if I may, in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus further tells us a little bit about who are the wise. In, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, five, chapter 5 to 7 of Matthew is known as the Sermon on the Mount. And at the end of it all, from verses 21 to 27, this is what uh, Jesus said. And then he went on, he said these few things first. He said, in verse 21 of chapter 7, he said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only, though, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. And then he, Jesus went on to further illustrate using this story on the wise and foolish builders to bring, him a, to bring home a point of who are actually the wise. And then in verse 24, he says this, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall. Why? Because it had its foundations on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. So it's very clearly of, uh, at the end of the Sermon on Mount, Jesus is basically saying, the person who is wise are those who actually hear my words and let it internalize it and build it into their lifestyles and act it out. So here in this passage, it's talking about the danger of just a merely verbal profession, the danger of merely activity-oriented activ activities, and the danger of merely intellectual knowledge. But the truly wise person, the person is the one who hears the Word of God, internalize it, and become part of their lifestyle and act it out. So here Jesus very clearly tells us who are the wise people. And here in, in, in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul gave us further three characteristics of wise people. And in verse 15, 16, and 17, three verses, three points, uh, three profound, practical, and very precious points that 
Paul gives to us. Number one, wise people are careful people. Here in verse 15, Paul says that. Paul said, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. The ESV version says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. So wise people are careful people. The wise walk is clearly defined in this verse. Paul says, look carefully. The word look means to observe. The word carefully carries the idea of being diligent, accurate, exact, and precise. That's the meaning of carefully. Look carefully how you walk. Be very careful how you live. The command is to give attention to the way we walk in this world so that we walk accurately and precisely. I don't know whether you've uh, seen anyone walk in a tight rope. And then you know what Paul is actually referring to here. The person on the tight rope watches where they place each step. Just the slightest of deviation or inaccuracy in their footing will result in a certain fall. So Paul here says, well, wise people are careful people. Wise people are careful in how they walk accurately, exactly, precisely, diligently. Because one step out, it may lead you down a slippery slope. So that's number one. Wise people are careful people. Be very careful how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. Number two, wise people make the most of every opportunity. In verse 16, it says that. Not just be very careful how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. Verse 16 says, making the most of every opportunity. opportunity. Why? Paul said, because the days are evil. Making the most of every opportunity. ESV said, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Making the making use of every, making most of every opportunity. We have to think of our stay here on earth in this world is very short. Billy Graham was asked what he was not surprised by in life. And he answered, it's brevity. Although he lived to 99 years old. And he still says, what I'm not surprised about this life is its brevity. It's so short. It's so short compared to eternity. It is just so short. And the Bible actually depicts and compare life like a wind in Job 7 verse 7. Say, remember, O God, that my life is but a breath, like a wind. And then the Bible also depicts life as a shadow. In 1 Chronicle 29 verse 15, he said, We are here for only a moment. Visitors and strangers in the land as our ancestors were before us. 
Our days on earth are like a shadow, gone so soon without a trace. A shadow, a wind. And then Psalms 39 verse 5, the scripture depicts life as a width of a hand. The width of a hand. He said, you have made my life no longer than the width of my hand. My entire lifetime is just a moment to you. At best, each of us is but a breath. And probably the most common uh, way that the scripture depicts life is in James chapter 4, verse 14. It's a vapor. Or other versions is like a mist. So do you even know what will happen tomorrow? What is your life? James said. You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Like a mist early in the morning. It appears only for a little while. And then when the sun comes out, the mist will disappear. Time, when it has once gone, cannot be recalled. In Job chapter 9, verse 25 to 26, Job says this. Job says, My life passes more swiftly than a runner. It flees away, filled with tragedy. It disappears like a swift boat, like an eagle that swoops down on its prey. So the scripture here compares time to a flying eagle. Yet time differs from the eagle in this, that the eagle flies forward and then back again. But time has wings only to fly forward. It never returns. Time flies very, very quickly. I have a friend in Sydney and uh, every year I send greetings to her because she used to attend my old church. And it's almost like a tradition. Every year and this, today I send her the greetings again and say, every time I say the same thing, I say, time flies, another year gone by. It's just the last year that I send you greetings. Now it's already one year has gone by so quickly. No wonder Moses in chapter Psalms 90, verse 12, the famous verse, Moses said, Lord, teach us to make the most of our time. Or he said, teach us to number our days so that we may grow in wisdom. So that we may grow in wisdom. And that is why here Paul says, making the most of every opportunity, making the most of every opportunity. And in the King James Version, it's actually redeeming the time. Help me to redeem the time. Help me to make the most of every opportunity, redeeming the time. Uh, we to take note that the word time, usually in Greek, has two meanings. One is chronos, as in chronology, as in time, as in minutes, hours, day, the kind of chronology, times. But here in this text, it's not chronos, it's kairos. Kairos is, is, is not chronos. Kairos denotes a measured, allocated, fixed season. It's what we call opportune time. Opportunity comes. And that is only that moment that you can enjoy. It's just that, for example, you like surfing. You can't just go out there. You have to wait for the wind to come. And then the wind comes, you have to, the timing need to be right. Go on and ride on the timing. And then you, you, you ride on it. It's, it's Kairos, the opportune time that God gives to us. In fact, the word opportunity in Latin 
actually means towards the port. Towards the port. It suggests a ship taking advantage of the wind and the tide to arrive safely in the harbour. The brevity of life is a strong argument for making the best use of the opportunities that God gives us. So here Paul says, wise people make full use of the opportunity that he has given to us. So making use of every opportunity can mean every time you can do something good, you should. You should use every chance that you have been given to do good. It suggests an attitude towards living and, and sees every situation as the perfect occasion to do God's will and influence others for Him. And during these days, as Paul said, why? Because the days are evil. During these evil days, we are to live out the goodness God has placed in us through faith in Christ. So here Paul says, wise people make full use, make the most of every opportunity, making the most of every opportunity, making the best use of the time, redeeming the time that God has given to us, the opportune time that we have, and be conscious that every moment can be an opportune time that God gives to us to do something wonderful for Him. I have an old church member, young, I was a youth pastor many years ago, and he was one of my youth leaders. And one day, he went to Box Hill for lunch with another person. And they went to this Vietnamese restaurant, they sat down, they, they ordered food, and they eat, and they start to complain about church. Complain, complain about this not right, that not right, complain and complain. By the way, he told me this story. Okay? And when, uh, when they finished lunch, uh, he went to the counter to pay. And that waiter said, well, somebody actually has already paid for you. And this person leave a note for you. Yes, he, uh, he opened up the note and the person said, I'm sorry, I sat next to your table and I overheard all your conversation about your complaint about church. And the person said, I'm a Christian and uh, I love my church because Christ loves the church. It's not exactly that bad as you make it out to be. I paid for your lunch, enjoy your day, and may the Lord bless you wherever you go. He came and told me this story. Someone actually paid for his lunch and shared a lesson with him. Opportune time that God sometimes gives to us to sow some wonderful seed into people's life. Timing. Every time you can do something good, you should. You should make use of every opportune time that God has given to us, redeeming the time. As Galatians chapter 6, verse 10 says, isn't it? So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Let us make use of every opportunity to do good to everyone, but especially to those who are of the household of faith. Redeeming the time. Buy up the opportunity. 
redeeming. It is a word from the marketplace. As in the, in the Roman culture, we all know it was used of buying a slave in order to set him free. And thus, this word, the idea of redemption is implied in this verse. You go down to your supermarket, you look for bargains because certain item is on sales, maybe Audi or somewhere, because you know they will not last very long. They are passing, they are changing. Tomorrow is a different story. And therefore, Paul said, make the most of them. Redeem the time, redeem the opportunity, buy them up. This is exactly the word he employs here. Buy up the opportunities which are created constantly by the evil days. Time is given us to use in view of eternity. The way we use our time to me is look at eternity. Always focus on eternity. C.S. Lewis said, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. So if I have our eyes fixed on eternity, then the time that we have here will become very productive. In the, about maybe 20 years ago, uh, Stephen Covey uh, wrote a very, a book that somehow hit the, 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 the business world, The Seven Habits of Highly Successful People. They have sold 30 million copies. And, uh, and he's a Mormon, by the way, if you don't know, he's a Mormon. And, uh, and then out the seven habits that he mentioned is one of his seven habits was to begin with the end in mind, he says. In other words, if we want to be successful in life, he says, we need to learn to stand back and determine what our long-term goals are and then to live each day in light of those goals. I think maybe he copied from, from the Bible because this is a very biblical concept anyway. In fact, Jesus often taught it himself, but with an interesting twist. He said that to be truly successful in life, the end that we need to start with is not in this life, but in the next. In the next. Eternity. Look at that, and then we will start to make use of every opportune time that God has given to us. It is said that long ago, when an Eastern emperor was crowned at Constantinople, the royal mason would set before his majesty a certain number of marble slabs. One he was, he was to choose then and there for his tombstone. That means on the day of his coronation, he has to choose his own marble for his tombstone. And the ancients thought that it is wise for him to remember his funeral at the time of his elevation, for his life would not last forever. If we could sense how short life is and how unpredictable, it would perhaps be so much easier to give it all to Christ. Make the 
most of every opportunity, Paul says. And then you say, why? Because the days are evil. I don't have time to, to go down to and expound on what in current mode that we are experiencing. But I like, but I think if, if, if judging from reading the scriptures from Timothy and, and, and Jesus warning about the last days and all that, I think I can summarize the uh, evil days in this three form. It's anarchy in the world, apostasy in the church, and apathy in the individual believer. Anarchy in the world. There's nothing wrong anymore. There's a very scary thought in this world that we live in nowadays. There's nothing wrong anymore. Anything that biblically say is wrong, we can twist it, turn it around, do some research, have some scientists to justify it, and it becomes something that is very good. Guilt used to be very good because it made you conscious that you've done something wrong, but nowadays modern psychologists will tell you that guilt is no good. Don't feel guilty anymore. Is no good for you. It's scary to know that wrong is no longer wrong. And uh, if you read Isaiah chapter 30, uh, this is what Isaiah say, chapter 30, verse 9 and 10 and 11. For these are rebellious people, deceitful children, children unwilling to listen to the Lord's instruction. They say to the seers, see no more visions. And to the prophets, give us no more visions of what is right. Tell us pleasant things. Prophesize illusions to us. Leave this way. Get off this path and stop confronting us with the Holy One of Israel. Wow. I thought it sounds like telling someone who don't believe in God in this world. So anarchy in the world. Apostasy in the church? Yes. There's incredible apostasy in the church nowadays. Church is, is no longer preaching the gospel that it once did according to the scripture. And now, did you know that about 20 years ago, they're starting this new movement, the new emerging church, church, the new emerging church where they do a lot away about church. It's almost like a neoliberalism movement of the 60s. They reject doctrine certainty. They reject scripture clarity. They reject gospel exclusivity. So there's apostasy in the church uh, and then lati in the individual believer. Apathy. Christians are so apathy, you know, in the sense they, they're just not passionate for the Lord. And no wonder in Matthew chapter 24, in the context of the end days, this is what Jesus says. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. Because we are sanitized by, by that kind of things until we become a norm. That the purity of the standard issued by the scripture is almost arcade. It's almost gone. It's almost like you need to live in a, in a long, long time ago. Then you upheld this kind of standard. Apathy in the individual believer. And here, Paul tells us, make use. Wise people make use 
make the most of every opportunity that is given to us. Make the most, the opportune time, and so sit and do wonderful things for the Lord. And finally, here in verse 17, Paul says, wise people understand the will of God. Wise people understand the word of God. The will of God, I'm sorry. He just said, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, the opportune time, redeeming the time because the days are evil. And in verse 17, therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Interestingly, as I was studying this passage, Paul didn't say, therefore do not be foolish, but seek the Lord's will. But he said, understand. You don't have to seek. You need to understand. It's been given to us already in the Scripture. So the Word of God always tells us what is the will of God for each one of us. Not the specific will of God, but the general will of God. And I think unless and until we walk in the general will of God, we won't be able to know the specific will of God in your own life. You need to walk under the general will of God first. Did you know that nothing more important in life for us Christians than to know what is the will of God? Jesus himself prayed that in the Garden of Gethsemane. It tells you how important it is. Jesus was there on the final night in the Garden of Gethsemane. He prayed, Lord, do I need to go to the cross? If you have plan B, Let's go down plan B. But if there's no plan B, let's stick to plan A. He said, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. And he taught us to pray, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So in that sense, God's will is very important. As Christians, as disciples and the followers of Christ, we need to know the will of God. What is God's will? Let me just briefly give to you with very, very fast without going into detail. In a universal sense, according to the scripture, what can we definitely say is God's will? I have six things here very quickly without going into detail. First one, of course, God's will is that God's will for our, our lives, first and foremost, is for us to come to know Him. So salvation. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3 and 4, he says that God's will for our lives is first of all to belong to Him through Jesus Christ. His first and primary will for every person is that they be saved and they are brought into the family and kingdom of God. So that is, that is uh, salvation. That's God's will for us. He wants us to be saved. Number two, God's will is that we are spirit-filled. Line will carry on from this text and from verse 19 onwards that tells us about spirit-filled. So second thing about God's will in our lives is spirit-filled. God's will is also that we be spirit-filled. As Paul will go on to say, do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. That is God's will in our lives. Salvation, spirit-filled, and thirdly, sanctify. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, it says, It is God's will that you should be sanctified. 
Meaning that God wants to mold you and shape you and transform you and change you to become more and more like Christ. That is His will for us. Salvation, Spirit-filled, sanctified. And fourthly, it is His view, submission. Fourth one is submission. It may be come as a surprise to you, but this is actually God's will for us to learn to submit to certain authority that God has placed over our care. Here in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13 to 15, it says that it is God's will for us to submit. He says, Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to the governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to command those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. So salvation, spirit-filled, being sanctified, learning to submit to authority. And fifthly, suffering. God's will may include suffering. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 20 tells us that sometimes it is God's will for us to suffer. In verse 20 of 1 Peter chapter 2, say, How is it, but how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, it is commendable before God. Suffering is part of the equation of sanctification. Without suffering, I can't imagine any one of us will grow as a believer. It is part of the equation. Part of the equation. Whatever equation there is about sanctification, it will always have to plus suffering. It's just part of life. It is through suffering that we learn to depend on the Lord and Christ, and Christ Himself suffered as well. So salvation, spirit-filled, sanctification, submission, suffering, and lastly, I'm trying to not break away from the S. It's actually giving thanks. But I just said, say thanks. <laughs> say thanks. And that is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16 to 18. Especially verse 18. In everything, give thanks. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. In everything, give thanks. Give thanks in all circumstances. Please note, you never say give thanks for all circumstances. You say give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So when a person is safe, when a person is spirit-filled, when a person is in the process of being sanctified, and when a person knows how to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, and when someone suffers, be thankful, you are already in God's will. You are in God's will. And that is the general will of God for all Christians. And when we walk in that pathway or under the general will of God, then Psalm 37 verse 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you desires of your heart. And David tells us here that when we are what God wants us to be, He is in control and our will is merged with His will and He Therefore, gives us the desire He has planted in our hearts. And in all these points from what is plain in Scripture, 
we can see that God directs a moving target. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto us. So here are three points. Paul says how to walk in wisdom is that wise people are careful people. Wise people make the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. And wise people understand the Lord's will. Let me close with this. There is an old tale of a village that they bought. This village bought a fancy tower clock. Sometime after it was installed, a visitor to the town discovered that all the people were sleeping during the day and working at night. And so he went, he was very puzzled, he went and questioned them. And they answered him, we have the most unique town in the world. After we got our new clock, we began to notice that the sun kept rising earlier and earlier every morning. Finally, the daytime hours were dark and the night hours were light. We are petitioning to our president for special recognition as the only town with such a situation. And so they investigate and, and they found out, of course, that the new clock had been running slower and slower, all because sparrows were roosting inside it. And so the people allowed themselves to be controlled by this man-made device. My concluding question then is, what about you, my friends? Uh, what is controlling you and robbing you of your walk with the Lord to walk wisely? And may Paul's words remind us this morning, be wise, be careful, make the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. And may you understand the will of God and walk in this way. Will you join me in prayer? Father, thank you for your word. A simple, straightforward instruction by Paul to tell us to be careful how we live, to make the most of every opportunity, the redeeming time, because the days are evil, and not to mention that our life on earth are so short. And also to understand your will. Yes, Lord, help us to walk under your general will. You are more concerned about us discovering who we are and what we are than whether we are supposed to be here in Melbourne or here in this place or whether we take up this profession or that profession. And many times we see your will as that. But your will is first and foremost for us to learn to walk under your will first. And then the specific way will come. Thank you, Lord. May we heed your advice. May we walk wisely. May we always remember how great you are and have eternity as sight, knowing that our lives on earth are too short and help us to be wise to always invest 
in eternity. Thank you, Lord. We bless you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before I invite you to sing the closing song, remember, kids, 11th day, uh, lock on with the kids' church. I invite you now to sing How Great Our Art. My God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made, I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the display then sings my soul my savior god to thee how great thou art how great thou art then sings my soul Humble adoration. 